Welcome to episode 2.1 of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'm Karen Stanbridge, Managing Editor of the CRS and your host. In this episode, you'll hear from three scholars whose work appears in recent issues of the journal. From the August 2020 issue, Audrey Gagnon is here to tell us about her research on the soldiers of Odin. Ms. Gagnon has studied the Canadian and Quebec chapters of this far-right group, and she'll tell us about the different ways they frame their appeals to cultivate membership in Canada. Also from the August 2020 issue, Marin Oleschik commits sociology in the time of COVID-19. She highlights the gendered effects of the pandemic on Canadian academics and has recommendations for promotion and tenure committees to ensure that academics don't face career penalties because of the pandemic. But we begin with Nicholas Graham. Dr. Graham is the winner of the Canadian Review of Sociology's Best Article Award for 2020 for his paper on Canada's post-carbon future. He's here to tell us all about it. So, off we go. If anything positive has come out of the COVID-19 pandemic, it is perhaps that it has inspired more public conversations of a greener post-COVID world. In Canada, the conversations invariably include debates around how carbon figures in the country's future. Dr. Nicholas Graham is well-versed in these debates and issues involved. My research interests are broadly in the area of climate change, politics, and policy. My research focuses on corporate power um, in and around the fossil fuel sector in particular, how this power is a major barrier to action on climate change. I'm also interested in alternative political projects for renewable energy and broader uh, green transition. Dr. Graham is here to talk about his article, Canadian Fossil Capitalism, Corporate Strategy and Post-Carbon Futures. It appeared in the May 2019 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology, and it just recently won the CRS Best Article Award for 2020. Dr. Graham explains how he got the idea for the paper while reviewing literature on the transition to renewable energies. In this um, research that I came across, the narrative um, often goes, the renewable energy transition is underway. Big oil companies have sort of seen the writing on the wall of this kind of carbon constrained future. And so they're diversifying their investments. Sometimes there's an additional suggestion um, that resistance to the sector is kind of irrational since it's big oil that's now driving the transition. And all the research that I found pointing to this process, it's quite um, based on quite anecdotal evidence. So I tried to examine more comprehensively in this paper, the strategies employed by uh, fossil fuel firms in relationship to alternative energy development um, and energy transition. Faced with these unsubstantiated claims that big oil was coordinating the transition to renewable energies, Dr. Graham decided to see if he could find evidence supporting those claims. It it was essentially me asking, to what extent can we discern efforts by the fossil fuel sector to establish control over renewable energy? Um, And is the sector engaging in a longer term business strategy to move 
beyond carbon while also protecting its current investments. Dr. Graham approached the matter from two different angles, using two types of data. I examined investments by the 10 largest Canada-based fossil fuel companies in renewable energy from 2012 to 2016. I did this using uh, annual reports, involved a fair bit of just scouring annual reports of these companies, along with some corporate investment databases. I also looked at interlocking directorate relations between the fossil fuel sector and the renewables industry. And so um, interlocking is when a director from one organization sits on the board of another organization. And so I considered especially uh, fossil fuel firms representation on the governance boards of renewable industry associations. So these are associations that essentially represent the renewable sector. Um, They lobby the government to advance that industry. And also interlocking director relationships with civil society advocacy organizations, advocacy organizations that advance a kind of climate capitalist vision. These are organizations um, like the Smart Prosperity Institute people might have heard of that create policies and discourses of climate capitalism. They seek to construct a kind of consensus for the project. They do this by reaching out to economic elites um, who will sit on their governance boards and then help shape uh, the vision for that project. And so interlocking directorate relations would further end, would be sort of further indicators um, alongside the analysis of investments of um, industry strategy in relationship to renewable energy. So what did he find? Is big oil leading Canada to a post-carbon future? I found limited overall evidence of a move into renewable energy as a kind of significant business strategy or what I call an accumulation strategy among the top 10 firms. Um, A number of them do have significant investments in renewable energy. But, you know, when I dug in a little bit more closely, I think I believe six of the top 10 firms did have investments. Among the top 10, TransCanada, Suncor and Tech, which are really big fossil fuel companies that people have probably heard of, made significant investments um, into renewables over that time period, 2012 to 2016. But I did witness a kind of recent shedding of those assets and also simultaneous expansion and deepening of oil and gas holdings. That was especially in 2016. Two firms, uh, Enbridge and Fortis, steadily increased their investments over that period in renewable energy, especially the the investments of Enbridge, which were quite large. I suggested could be interpreted as part of a kind of longer term transition strategy, but overall they still are relatively minor investments considering how huge you know their investment portfolio is and that it could equally be interpreted um, as a kind of legitimation effort for a company that's faced a lot of public criticism particularly around northern gateway pipeline project Uh, in terms of interlocking directorates fossil fuel firms are represented on uh, renewable industry associations Um, There is some representation there, and they're also found in um, some of these climate capitalist organizations like Smart Prosperity. 
But what I found was that the representation was typically lower level managers rather than sort of top directors or executives. And overall, the network that I, that I found was quite a, a thin network with not a lot of dense ties between the different organizations um, and one that could easily sort of dissolve into a set of, of dispersed uh, groupings. And so putting together those two types of findings, overall, I found some empirical evidence for a strategic orientation by certain firms towards a future climate capitalism. But findings largely point to a fossil fuel sector that is without significant plans for energy transition. And I suggested that the key uh, focused strategy of the industry is on reducing the emissions intensity of current oil and gas production processes and kind of greening the extractive process rather than a strategy of transitioning away from fossil fuels and into renewable energy. Dr. Graham's findings have some important implications for Canada's response to climate change. I think the, you know, the broad implication that I drew or argument that I made was that our current kind of market-based approaches to dealing with the transition won't do, essentially. They won't catalyze a transition that needs to take place quite quickly. And so the implication was that the market will not save us and that corporations will not be our green saviors here. And so I pointed to the need for more muscular policies that both um, seek to wind down the fossil fuel sector and also affect um, a rapid transition to renewable energies. So a lot of the, the literature on renewable energy development will point out that you can have a growing renewable energy sector alongside a growing fossil fuel sector, but you do need sort of active policies that pursue a managed wind down of that sector while also growing um, renewable energy at the same time. So that needs to be a critical part of thinking about energy transition. And I think, you know, more broadly, I point in this paper to, uh, to generally the problem of corporate power, power through the control over resources um, and over capital and how that, through that control, um, corporations have a tremendous amount of power and say over our economic and ecological futures. And so we need to think about measures alongside these policies. We need to think about measures that, that challenge and erode that power. Read Dr. Graham's entire award-winning article, Canadian Fossil Capitalism, Corporate Strategy and Post-Carbon Futures, in the May 2019 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. The rise of far-right movements in the US, Europe, and elsewhere has been a concerning feature of the last five to 10 years. But Canada has largely sidestepped this trend, or have we? Audrey Gagnon warns us that we have not. So I'm a PhD student in the Department of Political Science at Concordia University. And my research interest includes the construction of anti-immigration opinions in both its mainstream and more radical forms, uh, notably among members of anti-immigration groups. And I am also interested in far-right movements and ideas and conception of national identity with a particular focus on the Canadian and Quebec cases. 
Ms. Gagnon has an article in the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology titled Far-Right Framing Processes on Social Media, the case of the Canadian and Quebec chapters of Soldiers of Odin. As she explains, Canadian far-right groups make for an interesting subject of study because they espouse principles that seem contrary to Canada's national image as a tolerant country. Research in the field of Canadian politics and immigration tends to highlight Canada's exceptional context of acceptance of immigrants and support for its policy of multiculturalism. And this depiction of Canadian multiculturalism suggests that the country considers immigration as an integral part of its development as a nation and therefore welcomes and celebrates diversity. So as a result, Canada is often portrayed as immune to far-right politics and the dissemination of negative views about immigration. But some scholars, however, confirm the presence of active far-right groups in their attempt to introduce their beliefs into the mainstream. So I was therefore interested in better understanding how do far-right groups represent themselves and their claims to the public in the country which defines itself through its policy of multiculturalism. And following this line of thought, I was also interested in exploring whether and how far-right groups' discourse is influenced by cultural context, such as in the case of Canada, of Quebec, compared to the rest of Canada. To examine how the far-right has made inroads into Canada, Ms. Gagnon chose to focus on the soldiers of Odin. The first soldiers of Odin constitute far-right vigilante groups. So this consists of citizens taking the law into their own hands, and in this case, it is in the form of street patrols, and the group claims to protect individuals from the alleged threat posed by immigrants, and particularly Muslims. So just to contextualize a little bit, um, Soldiers of Odent was founded in Northern Finland in 2015 by a neo-Nazi activist in reaction to the so-called uh, refugee crisis. So members patrolled the streets claiming to protect Finnish citizens from perceived Islamic invaders. And through the use of Facebook, uh, the group was able to establish new chapters throughout Europe, uh, the United States, and in Canada and Quebec. And the distant groups located in Canada and Quebec also pursue an anti-establishment, anti-immigration, and anti-Muslim agenda. So these cases are particularly interesting because they were able to attract considerable attention from journalists, but also significant numbers of online supporters on social media, uh, specifically Facebook. Like all social movements, the soldiers of Auden seek to attract and retain members by transmitting or framing their ideas in ways that will resonate with potential recruits. But where do you get an idea of how they do this in Canada? Ms. Gagnon explains. Uh, in this research, I was interested in better understanding how the far-right group soldiers of Auden in Canada and in Quebec represent their group identity and claims to the public. And answering this question necessitates an exploration of their public communication. So this is why I analyzed the group's administrators' posts on their public Facebook pages, uh, Facebook being the platform used by the group for their recruitment, self-promotion, and uh, for sharing ideas and information about their activities. So I collected manually all posts by the administrators on the Soldiers of Odin Canada and Soldiers of Odin Quebec respective public Facebook pages. Uh, from when the accounts were open, that is January 2016 for Soldiers of Odin in Canada, and January 2017 for Soldiers of Odin in Quebec, 
until uh, February 2019. And the analysis also extends beyond text from Facebook posts to include comment, uh, pictures, images, video, and also news media articles posted by the administrators. So I maintain uh, that visual artifacts play a crucial role in communicative processes because they allow individuals to instantly express opinions and beliefs on a wide range of topics. Mining the public Facebook posts of the Canadian and Quebec chapters of the Soldiers of Odin revealed some interesting differences in the ways that each chapter framed their nativist objectives. Soldiers of Odin in Canada and in Quebec both use Facebook to promote the perceived threat posed by Muslims and call for engaging in community service and night patrols as solutions. But the two soldiers of Aden chapters, however, um, differs on the way that they shape their perception of the Muslim threat and negotiate their actions and collective identity. So in the case of soldiers of Aden in Canada, the frame of Muslims as a threat to Canadian right and freedoms predominates. So the group notably maintains that Muslims are trying to change Canadian laws and to impose an Islamist agenda on Canadians. And to prevent this situation from happening, the group suggests to help Canadians through community service and charitable actions, which, however, includes doing night patrols in neighborhoods with large immigrant population. And finally, they attempt to motivate Facebook followers by supporting the group by building a collective identity based on the notion of Canadian patriots. Now, in the case of Soldiers of Odin in Quebec, the frames of Canadian patriots protecting the charters of right and freedoms does not resonate much with Quebecers' uh, shared, shared experiences and emotional ties. Uh, as for a large proportion of Quebecers, Quebec constitute a minority nation in the Canadian federations. So instead, Soldiers of Odin in Quebec stresses its belonging to a transnational movement of like-minded far-right groups and links its depiction of Muslim invasion with value-oriented topics that have been widely discussed over the past few years in Quebec, so in the issues of secularism and the oppression of women. So these results suggest that soldiers of Aden in Canada and in Quebec negotiate their self-representation by employing cultural elements that are salient and meaningful in their respective sociopolitical context. Ms. Gagnon's research shows how social movements mobilize membership in places far removed from their original settings. They do this by framing their objectives in ways that align with local cultures. But we shouldn't forget the role that Mark Zuckerberg and social media play in helping groups like the Soldiers of Auden get their anti-immigrant, nativist views to a wider audience. I think that what is important to remember from uh, this paper is that frames can be disseminated across space, but that they also vary among the different actors. So this really shows the importance of examining all local, how local political and cultural forces define and circumscribe norms regulating the group discourse in the public sphere. So like any other social movements, far-right groups are dependent on the resonance of their claims to, be, to the intended audience. And how these group defines problems and solutions and build a collective identity is crucial in ensuring their survival across different contexts. And I would also like to highlight the fact that social media may expand possibilities for far-right groups to publicize their actions and ideas and to reinforce identification with the group. So far-right actors usually have 
limited access to traditional media and therefore turn to alternative media and social media platforms to express their view. So I would argue that social media constitute interesting data source for exploring far-right politics and particularly the content that far-right groups articulate and disseminate on social media. You can find Audrey Gagnon's article, Far-Right Framing Processes on Social Media, the case of the Canadian and Quebec chapters of Soldiers of Auden, in the Canadian Review of Sociology's August 2020 issue. This is not a time to commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology, commit sociology. Well, it sounds like it's time once again to see who's committing sociology with the Canadian Review of Sociology. Today, Crystal Radio welcomes Marin Oleschuk. Great, thank you for having me. So my name is Marin Oleschuk, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Guelph. And I work on the GenEC Advancing the Status of Women at the University of Guelph initiative. And this is an initiative that aims to understand barriers to women's equity within universities, as well as support gender equity and leadership across the University of Guelph, and just generally works to advance the status of all women on our campuses. Dr. Oleschuk commits sociology in the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. She takes up some important and timely issues in her piece, Gender Equity Considerations for Tenure and Promotion During COVID-19. So this commentary really stemmed from some research that I conducted for the GenEC initiative itself. And I think it has become, or it became clear for many people very quickly that COVID-19 was exacerbating inequalities in a variety of areas. And for us, our ears were particularly attuned to how this was playing out on university campuses. And one area of inequality that COVID did seem to be exacerbating was gender disparities in academic success. So existing research has documented systemic barriers impeding the productivity of female academics and especially women of color throughout their careers, such as those around the peer review process, resource and grant allocation, service demands, and family and household responsibilities. And it seemed that COVID was really drawing attention to those inequalities in a way that was making them increasingly difficult to ignore. And, you know, myself and others on the Gen Ec committee ultimately were or knew female academics and mothers in particular who were, were struggling to manage caring for their children or other dependents while also trying to maintain their research. And so this was something that we were seeing and, and feeling firsthand. And the focus on tenure and promotion um, emerged particularly because most departments at the University of Guelph were in the process of revising their TMP documents before COVID hit and therefore are now also thinking about ways to account for COVID in their revisions. And the committee and, and one GenEC member in particular, Ryan Gregory, saw the possibilities of a review such as um, the one that I conducted for this commentary for informing that process at Guelph. And so I, I kind of jumped on the opportunity to commit some sociology, so to speak, and use my sociological training in a way that could hopefully inform some positive changes at the university. Emerging data and research are already showing the gendered effects of the pandemic on Canadian academics, as Dr. Oleschuk explains. So first I review research that explores gender differences in three different data sources. So journal submissions, the posting of in-progress papers on preprint servers, and databases logging the initiation of new research projects. Um, and this research does indeed indicate or point to gender disparities over the past few months. So, for example, uh, while overall the proportion of articles being submitted to journals has risen since the lockdown, 
many journals are showing that the proportion of those submissions by women has dropped, both relative to the months leading up to the pandemic and during the same period, say, in previous years. But at the same time, we also want to keep in mind that journal submissions aren't necessarily the best indicator of productivity during COVID because they really rely on a, a vast amount of work completed before the pandemic hit. And other research has turned to preprint servers to kind of further investigate um, some of the trends that editors were initially seeing in journal submissions. So many academics today post their in progress or submitted research to these preprint servers. And so then analyzing how the number of submissions to these servers varies according to gender can offer a better sense of, of gender differences in academic productivity. And indeed data from these servers indicates a much, much stronger gender differences showing that proportionally women are posting less preprints than men, especially as lead or sole authors. And where I say that the data would be is actually the strongest is in these pre-registration reports or reports filed by researchers to record the initiation of new research, as well as in um, analyses of COVID related research specifically. And it shows actually the largest drops in women's productivity. So then together, these three data sources um, quite clearly demonstrate the differential impact of, of gender on academic productivity during COVID. So why does this matter? Well, as all academics know, any interruptions or slowdowns in productivity can have deleterious effects on their promotion and tenure files. Add to that the career disadvantages that academic women already face because of inequalities around domestic and caring responsibilities and, well, you see the problem. This long-standing research has shown that these that inequalities do inform men's and women's academic success. This isn't new, but it's also quite easy to see how the pandemic would exacerbate them, as it is other inequalities, um, because it has brought people's domestic responsibilities and their care demands, areas that we know are still very gendered, out into the open. So, you know, we know that women, including academic women, still shoulder a disproportionate share of care responsibilities within their households, and that this is negatively um, affecting their success in paid work. And we also know that academic women, especially women of color, have disproportionate service demands within universities. And so then it's quite easy to see how the rising care demands created by COVID, specifically those brought on, say, by remote working, um, a lack of childcare, and the virus's particular risk to aging populations are disproportionately incurred by women and disproportionately impede their ability to work at this time. And I think this matters really because the disparities that I, that I identify in this commentary are only expected to become more pronounced and kind of cumulative over time. They'll impact academic women's careers for years to come. And I think, as I kind of alluded to, that it's time really for universities to rethink their established ways of evaluating and supporting academic success to acknowledge and ameliorate some of the systemic differences and barriers impeding the success for different groups. Um, so this commentary was kind of meant to inform um, what that might look like within the context of gender. Dr. Olaszczuk provides 10 recommendations for university administrators and promotion and tenure committees. If these are implemented, they can help ensure the disparities in productivity caused by COVID-19 do not unduly damage the careers of academic women. Here she describes her top three. Well, I mean, I, obviously, I think they're all important for different reasons. But if I had to kind of pick my top three, I'd say, I mean, first of all, um, the one year um, opt out 10 year clock extension is an important first step um, and one that many universities are already implementing. 
However, I also stress in the report that this alone isn't enough to ameliorate the inequities they identify. Um, many universities are kind of stopping there. Um, but uh, while these tenure clock extensions are common, they do still have been shown to still end up hurting women in the long run because they end up putting off promotion and the positions and granting opportunities that it facilitates. And research also shows that men and women use parental leaves differently, um, with men more likely to use it to work on writing, say, and women more likely to be caregiving full time during leaves. So I think it's important to go beyond um, these tenure clock extensions. And so a second consideration that I'd like to highlight is to provide faculty with who have care demands um, with more research and or teaching support and greater flexibility to utilize that support. Um, this could include, for example, setting up discretionary funds or temporary discretionary funds to hire RAs or TAs or support staff for those with added care burdens during the pandemic or allowing faculty research accounts to support caregivers. So this includes kind of a, a bolstering um, component and a flexibility component. And I think that this could also be something that could remain in place after the pandemic to address some of the longstanding challenges that academics with care demands face. And then lastly, I'd like to stress the importance of reevaluating these discipline specific metric indicators and, and timely progress standards for tenure and other evaluations right now. We are, you know, really in the midst of a global pandemic and are simply not operating at the same capacity that we normally would. And, and I think it's important to explicitly acknowledge this and, and try to account for it as best as possible. And I think it's important then to explicitly flag it to both to TMP committees, but also to faculty in order to minimize the added stresses and uncertainty that faculty are facing about how the pandemic will impact their administrators' expectations of their performance. Read Dr. Olischek's piece, Gender Equity Considerations for Tenure and Promotion During COVID-19, in the Committing Sociology section of the August 2020 issue of the Canadian Review of Sociology. And we've come to the end of another episode of Crystal Radio, the podcast of the Canadian Review of Sociology. I'll be bringing you more sociology from the August 2020 issue of the journal in the coming weeks, as well as a special conversation with Carl E. James. He's the winner of the Canadian Sociological Association's Outstanding Contribution Award for 2020, so stay tuned. I'm Karen Stanbridge. Thanks for listening.